Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome back to the Prepoint Pod. Today we welcome back Tama Barry, who was our very, very first podcast guest. Tama is a former professional ballet dancer and now fully qualified sports psychologist. Today we talk about nervousness and the difference between nervousness and anxiety, and also about career transitions in the ballet industry. I really hope you enjoy this one. Tama and welcome back to the Prepoint Pod. You're actually my first returning guest. So yeah, a big welcome. Since we last spoke, which was actually towards the end of 2021, you've had a lot happen in life. So do you want to give our listeners a bit of an update firstly on who you are? Because if they haven't listened to the very first episode, they may not know, but also explain what you've been up to in that time. Yeah, of course. Thank you very much for having me back. I'm excited to be here and chat all things psychology. Uh, so a little bit about me. So I was previous, previously a ballet dancer. So I uh, trained and grew up mainly in Australian schools in Sydney. And I went to the Australian Ballet School in Melbourne before joining Queensland Ballet in the late 90s. So quite a long time ago. I was a soloist with Queensland Ballet before moving overseas where I danced with Scottish Ballet in Scotland. And I was a principal dancer there. Uh, I retired in 2013, uh, at which point I started studying psychology, where I did an undergraduate, both across Glasgow University and Queensland, uh, University of Queensland, uh, which I then went on and did my master's at the University of Queensland in uh, sports and exercise psychology and I am now a qualified and fully practicing performance psychologist so so a little bit about what that means it means I am a general psychologist as in I work across general mental health concerns but I have a specialism or a uh, focus on how to make people high performing and that of course includes dancers and so today <laughs> we're going to talk a little bit about pre-performance nerves and uh, transitions going through changes in, in dance careers. 
So yeah, so it's been a busy, busy few years for you. Um, it's so great to have you back. So let's start off with talking about nervousness and nerves. Quite often a dancer might feel this before they perform on a stage, but maybe also before an exam. And sometimes even sometimes even in class, like day to day, maybe um, depending on the situation, a dancer might feel nervous just generally, I guess, going into a class, especially in an unfamiliar setting or even an audition, I guess. That would be another place a dancer would feel nervous. So what is nervousness and why do we feel nervous? That's probably yeah. a very good question. Sorry. <laughs> no, great questions. And they both work together. So I work mainly in sport and dance. So I work with the Queensland Academy of Sport as well as with um, dancers. And this is a really common, common concern across people. And I think what we should start with is that nervousness is perfectly natural. It is a natural response to something that we think is important. And this really goes to the heart of what our emotions and nervousness is, is an emotional response. And emotions are information. It's our body telling us something about the world around us, about how we perceive the world. And it's giving us an idea of what we think about what's happening. And these go back to really our evolutionary, um, our ba evolutionary background where our emotions were very much uh, connected to our safety, are connected to our ability to survive out as a um, as small tribes where there are a whole pile of wild animals that could harm us, but also there were social harms as well, where if we were removed from the group or separated from the group, we were less likely to survive. So our emotions are really built way, way back into our, um, into our uh, basic systems and structures of survival. So what is nervousness? So nervousness is our body telling us that something we're about to do is important. So for instance, if we use the idea of doing a uh, opening night for a ballet, if it was a ballet that we had done many, many times before, and we'd done it successfully many, many times before, our nervousness might be quite uh, low. So we might feel the jitters of going on stage, butterflies in our stomach, these physiological changes. We might feel a little bit sweaty. Uh, we might feel our heart moving a little bit faster than normal. This is our body preparing itself for the actions that we're going to take. So this is a really good thing. These are healthy, wonderful things to happen for us because we're really setting ourselves up for success here. The nervousness as well, the, the, the thoughts that come with it and the emotional kind of connection to this and the, the, um, the narrowing of our focus is also really important. So we start to focus in on what we're going to try and do next rather than focusing on maybe someone's conversation that they're having in the distance or something else that's happening around us. We focus in on the task we have at hand. And that's another aspect of nervousness that's really helpful. We get really task focused. And then we start having thoughts. Quite often these thoughts can seem quite negative. And I like to think of our thoughts as like a cage or a group of chimpanzees in our head. And they're just going wild. And the chimpanzees are never gone. They're always like flying about our head and they're all saying different things. So I don't know if you've been to the zoo and, and watch, it doesn't have to be chimpanzees, any monkey enclosure. And you notice like there's 
There's monkeys having a cuddle in one corner. There's two fighting in the other, one screeching, one's eating, one's sleeping. They're all like wildly different things going on. And I like to think of our minds and our thoughts and emotions as that kind of thing. It's just this wild um, troop of monkeys going nuts. And nervousness, when we're nervous or something's really important to us, quite often the monkeys that become the most active and therefore grab our attention are the ones that are talking about the task we're about to do. And more often than not, if we think about our evolutionary brain, which is designed to find threat and danger, more often than not, the things those monkeys are talking about are things that might go wrong. This isn't a bad thing. This is our brain reacting naturally from our evolutionary process and it's reacting really naturally and giving us advice on what we should be looking out for that could go wrong, that might get in the way of great performance. And that's cool. It's all doing the right thing. It maybe doesn't feel great though. It maybe can feel a little bit overwhelming and we start focusing in on the negative aspects that are happening to us. What we can do is we can decide what aspects we focus on. So while those things are great and they're helpful, we may want to focus in on the things that are perhaps more helpful than those thoughts of this may not work for me. Uh, last time I did this in rehearsal, it wasn't really great. I need to do this. I should have done this. These should have could have would have. And what I like to think about these monkeys is, any of you that have watched American sitcoms, there's always that, friend that's a little bit like always getting it wrong, best of intentions, but always mucking it up and causing chaos. That's kind of these monkeys. They are the best of intention. They're desperately trying to help you succeed, but they're just doing it in a way that feels like they're trying to get you down. But that's not the truth at all. They're all about helping you succeed the best way you can. They're just doing it in this kind of clunky way. So that's kind of what nervousness is from my perspective and how I like to think of it. There's this great, um, <clears throat> great exercise by another psychologist called Jonah Oliver, which I, I saw on a podcast. And I just think this is the, the best way to kind of get around the idea of nervousness and performing. And, and what he talks about, he works in sport mainly. So he does this with sport, but it works really well with dancers is if I was going to give you a ticket and on one side, it said, you're going to have a ballet career. Um, this is your ticket to your ballet career on the one side. Everyone would take it, right? Like we all want a ballet career. We'd be like, great, I'm going to take that. Well, what if on the other side, the terms and conditions were, you're going to feel nervous. Sometimes you're going to be unsure whether you're going to succeed. Sometimes there's going to be a whole pile of psychological emotions and thoughts that are going to come up that are maybe not so comfortable and not so happy, would you still take the ticket knowing that that was the other side of the choice? Because the truth is you cannot have a dance career without feeling nervous sometimes, without feeling like it's all too much, without feeling like it's a big challenge and you're worried you're not going to be able to do it. This is a natural part of doing very, very difficult things and very, very important things. And that's our body's response to these important things. So why do we get nervous? Is because dancing is really important to us. If we didn't care about it, we wouldn't get nervous. Uh, and so essentially that's, that's 
a very long way of answering that question. No, I, th I think that's really great. I love the monkeys. Um, I mean, any kind of any kind of rapidly moving animal that move around in packs. I guess you could imagine any animal that you want. Absolutely. I really like yeah that that sort of you know you can have a ballet career, but it's going to be you know there are going to be challenges in that. I guess that's the other thing that's that's also really important to highlight. And I guess as a physio, like I sort of think the same thing, like it's also going to be physically challenging as well. Like you, you're going to have to push and work hard. And I think maybe lots of people see that more. Um, they see that because they're seeing dancers perform on the stage and they can imagine that what they're doing is physically hard to do, but they don't always see the feelings. Like you can't always see the feelings. So maybe when you think, oh yes, I'd love to be a professional dancer. It looks great. It looks really physically hard, but a lot of the psychological challenges that professional dancers have probably aren't as and in view, I guess, as like some of the the other challenges. And maybe that's like happening a bit more, like maybe more dancers are speaking about psychological health and mental well-being and there's more conversation in this space. And I think social media becomes a bit of a platform for that. But I still think it's quite hard, especially for very young dancers who are like 10 or 11 who are going to a ballet and watching a ballet, they wouldn't see see what see the thoughts that are going on in that dancer's head necessarily before before the performance or while they're actually doing the performance. I think that's a really good point. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think to both the physical and emotional, psychological difficulties of dance is the whole point of dance is that it's meant to look effortless. So when we go and we watch a performance, if we were to notice that dancers were having difficulties physically or if they're having difficulties mentally, if we were noticing that, then that would actually be, you know, that would break that fourth wall and it, it wouldn't be what we'd sort of paid for. That's not the entertainment we were after as an audience member. And that's certainly from the dancer's perspective, what you're not what you're trying to portray. You're trying to portray whatever the character is or the choreography or whatever you've got. So, and I think that's a really good point is that quite often, and especially, you know, with social media and, uh, and, and all these other tools that are used as advertising or as ways to create brands around dancers, very few of them are there showing the difficulties they face, uh, either physically or emotionally and psychologically. And, even if they are, it's in a very controlled way, quite often after the fact that the difficulty has been dealt with. So it's more reflective. And I think it's really important to remember that is, you know, physical health is maybe more commonly spoken about, but <clears throat> mental health is really important as well. And, and dancers are humans. And so they have all the same mental uh, stresses in their lives as anyone else. So. Um, the likelihood that every dancer you see on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, name, whichever, the likelihood that they've had a blessed path where they've had no struggles is pretty much zero. They've all come across at some point some difficulties. And I think it's really important to remember that as we kind of build ourselves into dancers, whether we're students or junior dancers or even senior dancers in companies, it's really important that we recognize that everyone's having difficulties we're not out on a limb failing 
we're, we're just going through the process of being a dancer. And part of that is overcoming these sort of tricky moments in our careers. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this also leads into my next question, which is, you know, obviously when we're nervous, it's not the best feeling in the world. It's really uncomfortable and it's icky and it's an unpleasant experience. But are there ever moments where being nervous is actually a really good thing? Absolutely. Absolutely. Like I was sort of talking about, if we can grab the monkey that's uh, that's directing us and focusing us where we want to focus. So I kind of think about the monkeys flying around our head and we have choices as to which monkey we want to we want to focus on, right? Some monkeys, and especially when we're nervous, some monkeys are going to be particularly um, noisy and they're going to try and grab our attention and they're going to hold our attention. And they're generally the ones that are negatively focused because that's where our brain goes to protect us. But within that world of monkeys, there's other monkeys that are talking about how to enter the stage in a confident, present space. There's other monkeys that are talking about how to lift, how to whatever your steps are, how to engage in them in the most, uh, in, the, in the way you've been rehearsing. So there's really helpful monkeys as well. And so if we can grab onto the helpful monkeys alongside all that physiological preparation that's gone through our body, alongside the narrowing of focus that's helping us fixate on what we want to do at the moment, if we can connect all those things together, then nervousness is a real superpower because it's an energy. Any kind of anxiety, happiness, it comes with a physical energy that is then useful for performance. We can, we can channel that. And it's when we're channeling it that it's healthy. If it, at times we can't channel it anymore and it starts to become overwhelming, that's when you know it starts to become a little bit unhealthy. So nervousness in and of itself is a really useful, important and necessary part of performance. Yeah, and I guess on that spectrum too, are there any times where feeling nervous is actually really bad and it and it decreases our productivity or makes us do a bad performance? Yeah, so there's the Yurt Dodson um, uh, arousal inverted U. So basically an inverted U is if you got a regular U and you turn it upside down. And so this is the inverted U. And what it's really talking about is level of arousal. So this is nervousness is a, a level of arousal where we're getting, we're preparing to do something. And so that's kind of that level of arousal. And there's a perfect point where the level of arousal and the challenge kind of hit. And at that point, it's like perfect. And that's going to get us best performance. With that, if we go at the beginning of the U, there's a point where we're not aroused enough. So we're a little bit sleepy or we're not really interested. It's not important to us. So we're not getting that nervousness. We're not getting those butterflies, that kind of feeling. And so we're not going to perform at our best because we're not really focused. We're not really invested. And so our arousal is low. Equally, if we drop the other side of the U where we're kind of like over aroused and we're uh, moving more towards that kind of if we're talking about nervousness, we're moving more towards anxiety or panic, then obviously our performance is going to drop again. So there is a point 
that they suggest is kind of like optimal for performance. And that'll be different for every single person. So some people need to be highly aroused to, um, highly physically aroused to perform well. Some people need to be a little bit more chilled out to perform well. Sometimes it can be dependent on what role you're doing. So if you came out doing Kitri and you're like super chilled out, maybe it's not gonna work because it's this fiery power role. But if you came out as uh, Aurora and you're like smashing it like Kitri, you're highly aroused. Equally, it's not really the right arousal, right? I guess the, the best ballet that shows us differences in, in um, dynamic that is connected to arousal is Swan Lake. We have the white swan, which is um, calm and elegant and these kinds of things. And then we have the black swan, which is forceful and dynamic. They're different arousal levels to jump on stage and be able to do those solos. So while arousal is different for different things, there tends to be a, a sweet spot for each individual and that's different per individual. Yeah, I think that's really important. And I guess also just understanding the spectrum and kind of channeling different levels of that for different roles. I really like that. Um, and I guess, I guess that's sort of part of the pre-performance preparation. And that's why we have rehearsals and things in the environment that we're going to rehearse in and stuff so that we know what to expect in some ways, but then also so that we can choose how much we, we give or how much we, we want to feel aroused, I guess. Like, yeah. Yeah. I think part of that rehearsal and the part that we probably aren't investing in or certainly isn't necessarily made into it is how do I lift my arousal or how do I drop my arousal? And we can rehearse this. We can practice this in the studio. So there's loads of ways. And again, they're really individualized to the person. For some people, it could be like, I really love listening to high energy music that lifts up my uh, arousal. And the same thing could be that if I'm feeling too aroused, I'm feeling like overly nervous, then maybe I listen to something really calming, could be a, I don't know, a sleep story or whatever. And that kind of brings me down in the arousal. It could also be that I do physical things. So maybe I uh, use an uplifting meditation. So I, I do some mindfulness where it's about like feeling the energy coming into my body. And that is something that I use to A, get me present, but B, build up my energy. And I could use a similar sort of thing to bring myself down as well. So, and again, this is gonna be different for different people. Uh, I used to jog around the stage in circles for 10 minutes before a show started to kind of moderate my nervousness. I was always kind of um, quite a nervous performer beforehand. I, I always wanted to do a good job, all the same things as every other dancer in the world. And so that was my way of just taking some of that physical energy off was just a jog round and round and round. And I would think about the steps I was gonna do. So I was becoming present, but also reducing that level of arousal. And that could be the total opposite for someone else. I didn't like to talk to people before a show because I found that my focus got taken away. For some people, I have many friends that just love to have a big, big chitter chatter because that helped to loosen some of that nervousness. So it's about practicing these things in the studio. So when we get to the stage, we can experiment with them then. And also understanding that they're not fixed. It's gonna change throughout your career and your life. 
and they're going to need constant refining and constant experimentation and there's no right and there's no wrong it's just an area of exploration and so is there ever a point where a dancer would need to see a psychologist to to help them through dealing with pre-performance nerves yeah i think so i think you know obviously with um a sports or a performance psychologist we can support dancers at any stage in their career building um, skills. Uh, they don't need to be within a, a realm where uh, it's become overly difficult and they, they're not coping anymore. It can be at any time. And, and mostly those skills are going to be better uh, absorbed by a person when they're in a, uh, when they're in a um, comfortable mind frame. Um, but ultimately, if performance is becoming, the nerves are becoming overwhelming, where uh, they may be causing some panic, or they may be causing anxiety, which is a very different thing to nervousness, anxiety, more chronic. Uh, so nervousness should happen as the sort of in the afternoon leading up to the show, or maybe from the night before, whereas anxiety was probably coming in, you know, a couple of weeks ahead. And it's sort of building steadily over time. And there's that feeling of dread as opposed to that feeling of excitement. Um, so a very different experience. If something like that's coming up, then there may be some things around there that working with a psychologist could be really helpful to sort of just pull apart a little bit, build some skills in. Um, and the earlier we engage with that, the better, because if we can get in early before it sort of grows and grows and grows, which is generally what anxiety does, it, it, it kind of grows into a big monster. Um, <clears throat> or I like to think of it like the monkeys just are too crazy. You can't, you can't sort of decide who to focus on in the monkeys, they go a bit nuts. Or this idea of having a monster on your back or these kinds of things. We want to get before that happens so that we can give you skills where you can come out of that, you can start making the choices you wanna make. Because ultimately we wanna be in a space where we can make choice. And that's very much what a psychologist can help you do. And uh, you know, if we're, if we're getting into that anxiety stage and it may be affecting our performance as well. So that might be an indicator of that something's not going right mentally is that performance is decreasing even though performance in the studio is really, really good. So there may be an indicator there. Um, and once our performance starts dropping, we can get quite depressed about that. You know, this is a really important thing that we're trying to do. Um, this is our life. We've put a lot of investment into it, <clears throat> time, money, effort. And so it can be quite depressing when A, our performance is dropping and B, we don't feel like we have any real control in the situation. And so at those sort of times, it'd be really good to go and see a psychologist about nervousness in particular. Yeah, that's very helpful. Um, definitely. Yeah. And I guess, you know, maybe something to, if you're a dancer and you're dancing in a school or an academy, and maybe if you can see that one of your friends or your peers is struggling, maybe that's something you can also suggest to them. Like, do you have any tips for, I know this is a little bit of a question out of the blue but do you have any tips for somebody who 
notices that their friends are, are struggling or that they're getting, I guess, increasingly nervous or it looks like they're not coping, like what would you say to a friend who is having trouble like that? Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because obviously if they're your friend, you're not a trained clinician and actually we should never be treating our friends. But what there's some great, um, there is some great, great evidence out there that tells us that uh, offering, letting your friends support you means that they get better well-being. So for all those people out there that are holding in their problems and they don't want to talk to their really close friends about them, if the reason you're worried about doing that is because you're going to burden them too much and they're not going to cope, actually being vulnerable with those problems and allowing your friends in can give your friend better well-being because they're then able to support you. And it can, if done with very close friends, uh, improve your relationship with them, tie you a little bit closer. So there's, there's a lovely process of offering and gaining social support. I think as far as what to do in that instance, really helping them build capacity to reach out for help. So even if that's just listening to them and letting them know that you don't judge them and that you validate their feelings, then that's the first person perhaps that they've spoken to about it and feeling that they're not alone in the world, feeling that they are um, heard and feeling that they are not judged for these, these feelings that they have inside them is really, really powerful. And that's really the greatest gift you can give as a friend is to listen and allow them to be vulnerable and then protect their information insofar as, you know, be a trustworthy friend, be respectful that someone has opened themselves up to you. If you feel that they've told you things that are worrisome to you, then it's best that you reach out to an adult. If you're, if you're a young student, reach out to an adult, whether that be the person's parents or your own parents, and get some advice on how to um, best communicate that and get the best support around that person. If you're an adult in this situation, again, it would be getting them support. So whether that's leading them towards the, um, if there's any well-being officer or well-being support within the company that you're working in, sort of guiding them towards that, or even uh, suggesting that you work together to go and get support. If as the person offering the support, you don't feel comfortable doing this, or you don't feel like you know what to do, or you don't, um, or you're unsure, then reach out. There's in every country in the world, there is a version of Lifeline or a, a, um, a phone number that you can call to get mental health advice and support. So even as someone supporting someone else, sometimes it's worth reaching out to those lines to get some further advice, get some, um, connections to other places that they can can call and also giving that number to your friend as well and sort of saying listen I feel like I'm a bit out of my depth here maybe it would be good if you if you contacted these numbers but ultimately first and foremost being a trustworthy respectful friend and allowing them to open up uh, you don't have to solve their problems you don't need to be a problem solver just have a listen 
And then if you feel uncomfortable or if you feel that it is well out with your experience and you're worried about it, seeking um, help from um, sources that are able to provide that sort of support, depending on where you are. I might even um, put some links to support services like Lifeline in Australia, at least in the show notes, so that people who are listening can click right on them and, yeah. and go and see what they're about. That's very, yeah, very important advice. And yeah, I guess, yeah, I really like keeping their information confidential, but also like reaching out to a trustworthy adult or a trustworthy person so that you, if you do feel like you don't know what to do with that information, then you have somewhere to go. I think that's, yeah, that's really important. Yeah. As a psychologist, two of the reasons that we may break confidentiality with the client are if we think that the client is going to hurt themselves or if they're going to hurt someone else. And I think that's a really good um, kind of way to hold that information of your friend as well. Keep that information confidential and be a trustworthy friend unless you feel that they're in harm, in harm's way, either from themselves or if they're going to harm another. And, and really that's taking care of them uh, in a way that maybe they're not capable of doing right at this time. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to take a little bit of a turn now <laughs> <laughs> to a slightly different topic. So we were going to have a chat about transitions and changing environments and changing careers or moving schools. One of those sort of transition, well, the issues or the difficulties about transitions is knowing when, when is the right time, when is the right time to change or to move on um, and, and what are the reasons you might consider doing that and, and how to go about doing that. It's a very, very, there's so many places you could go with, go with that. <laughs> I think the dance industry can be a tricky industry to work in because it is based a lot in friendship and loyalty and kind of a family kind of feeling. And I think that's really nice space to work in, but I think it can mean that we think about whether or not we're gonna transition, whether we're not gonna move uh, in, in different ways. I think also just each dance school, each dance company, has their own trickiness, uh, whether that be structural trickiness, uh, interpersonal trickiness, um, whatever that may be, lack of, lack of support services, not enough physiotherapy, um, maybe too much of something, um, whatever. Maybe it's like you're performing 220 times a year and you just feel like your body can't cope with that. For whatever reason, it's a tricky industry because we are incredibly loyal to each other and we build these familial bonds. But at the same time, within that and within these kind of other trickiness, we've got to do what's best and right for us. And I think that's the thing that we need to remember as dancers is we are never without choice. We can at any time decide to move, to change, to leave. We have those choices, whether or not they're the choices we want to make, <laughs> understanding that the dance career is tricky and that is just going to be how it is. Um, 
because of the cultural and structural norms surrounding it. It's a tricky dynamic career. So what is right for us and what is the right time to move on and why I need to move on and, and when I do that is going to be very, very individualized. I guess I can talk a little bit to my experience as a dancer and how I moved around. Um, my initial movement was to move to a ballet school in Sydney. That was really about um, gaining uh, greater expertise in the teachers that I was around. My teacher that I'd had in Papua New Guinea was amazing. She took me really, really far, but there weren't any other boys in the school. <laughs> there were no male teachers. We kind of hit a limit where uh, I, I possibly wouldn't have had a professional career had I stayed. So she supported me in moving on to my next school. And again, I was at that school for a period of time. I grew massively there. I gained a whole pile, but I kind of reached a natural point where it was time to move to the next step. And the next step was a feeder school, uh, the Australian Ballet School, which is the feeder school to the Australian Ballet Company. And so I joined there. And again, that process was very much um, one of learning new skills and gaining new skills. And obviously at the end of that, there's this graduation process where you go out and then get a job. All those movements were highly guided by my teachers and by my parents and by a whole pile of other people who as a child and as an adolescent were providing me with advice on how to make those moves, when to do them, what was appropriate in those transitions. So that was very, very helpful. And in my instance, it was um, done at the right times for me. And I felt very confident in those processes, but it could be that you're stuck in one of those spaces where you're like, I feel like this isn't working for me. That's a good time to have a big conversation with your caregiver and just sort of say, listen, this isn't working for me. This isn't building me up as a dancer like I wanted to. These are the things that are getting in the way. These are the things that I wish were different. I am trying to make the changes I can make. I'm taking control of the things I wanna control and it's still not working for me. Cool, there are, I don't even know how many feeder schools around the world. There are tons of options. The likelihood is if you got into one, you will get into another because it's not like the talent suddenly flies off the handle as soon as you leave Australia. Mm -hmm. Australian dancers are very talented. The schools are very good. Um, and the same is true for dance schools all over the world. So I guess speaking specifically to Australian dancers, but I guess this would work for a lot of dancers that are in countries that seem very um, geographically isolated from the rest of the world there are far more opportunities for success than what we think there are just here. So moving, transitioning, that's a far more normal thing in Europe. That's a far more normal thing in North America uh, because there's more companies, there's more movement, dancers travel more. <clears throat> They're commonly doing classes with other companies. Whereas in Australia, we're kind of separated from that. So we don't have that same tradition of movement. So it can feel a little bit more like a big decision here. Whereas in sort of European, North American, Canadian companies, it can feel a lot less uh, of a big decision because everything's a lot closer. Um, I suppose 
that kind of is a very broad version of what to do or what I did as a student. Coming into a company, I think there's a couple of things that, especially for a new dancer, are really uh, important to at least acknowledge is that quite often we're just surprised, pleased, and delighted that we actually got a job. We know how difficult this industry is and we know how hard it is to actually make that jump into um, the professional side of things. So sometimes that can feel like, oh my God, I finally got a job. No one else will want me. Again, if someone wants you, someone else wants you. There's, you know, it's not, again, talent and hard work and good dancers are pretty similar the world over. So maybe you're in the first three years of your first job as a ballet dancer and you're scared to move because um, <clears throat> there's going to be no job for you, but you're in a company that is doing works that you're not really interested in. Therefore, you're not really developing as an artist. Therefore, you're not really showing yourself to your best. Therefore, you're not getting the career that you put all this effort into. Okay, cool. There's no problem there. The issue is that we've got a dancer that wants something in a company that wants something else. Well, go to a company that's going to give you your best life. That's the aspects that I think as dancers we don't think about is our own um, needs, wants, and requirements as artists. And it's, you know, we need to fulfill that. Dance careers are short. Uh, and it's important that we protect what we want out of the career as well. Saying that, every career is going to have their own trickiness. If you're moving around because um, it's a hard career, or if you're moving around because it's a hard environment to work in, you're probably not going to find an easier environment. You might find an environment that works better for you, but it's a tough environment. It's an elite level hard to get into um, top of the pyramid kind of career. And that comes with certain constraints. So recognizing that every ballet company, every dance company, every West End show has their own trickiness that you're going to have to navigate. Really the ultimate reason we do transitions and we move from company to company, the big reason I moved from Queensland Ballet to Scottish Ballet, was I wanted to change the kind of dancing I was doing. It had nothing to do with the director, the dancers I was working with. I had been there for seven years. We'd done great stuff. I just wanted to do something different with my career. And so I moved. Um, and I did it at a time that I felt was right for me. I feel yeah. like I'm just kind of like giving a, <laughs> giving a full blow by blow of my career. But um, I guess ultimately wrapping this up, wrapping this up is it is a very difficult career and there are going to be times when you don't feel like the space you're in is necessarily the best for your growth. At that point, it's probably the environment telling you that it might be time to move to a space that is going to better support your growth. What I would suggest is taking some time to better understand what you want, what you're prepared to compromise on, and what are the no-goes. Mm. Because that will mean that when you go to different schools, go to different ballet companies, you look at them through a lens 
that tells you whether or not this company may suit you. Mm. Yeah, I think this is um, such an interesting and important conversation to have because a lot of the time I agree, I think dancers are just stoked to have a job and we're, can, we're taught that we should be stoked to have a job. But I think what we probably don't realise, and especially being in Australia, is that there are there are jobs there are jobs there are certainly dance you know jobs for dancers there might not be as many jobs for dancers as there are for school teachers or for nurses or something like that but it's still a transferable skill and you're right like if you have been accepted into a school or a company of a certain caliber then there's there's a I guess I don't want to say a transactional value but it's an equivalent kind of high level of of skill that you've developed that is you know it's it is it's it's you can like shift into a different company and or a different school and and still kind of be at the standard you need to be at so I guess you know and there are people that do struggle to find their first job too um you know they'll do lots of auditions and try lots of different places and maybe still not succeed and I think because there are so many people who are trying really hard to get to that pinnacle maybe that's also another reason why we're sort of conditioned to say no no no, you've got a job just take the job but I think there does come a time when there's no point in having the career if it's not really fulfilled like if you're not fulfilled by it that's the other thing too it's yeah it's a tricky tricky situation but yeah I think dancers are very critical of themselves as well and I think that probably doesn't help you know in terms of being confident about what kind of what kind of a dancer they are or you know who else might see value in their dancing as well I think that's the other thing yeah Yeah. I think I think it's really important to try and see as much dance as you can Mm. uh, across as many different companies and countries as you can uh, to build up an understanding of where you stand in the world I think Mm. that's the other thing we don't have in Australia is we have so few companies that you don't get this idea that oh actually my skills are really high because the companies in Australia are fairly similar. So you're not getting necessarily an idea of where you stand in the world. You're just getting an idea of where you stand in Australia amongst similarly trained people of similar skill. Um, And I think the other thing to really recognize is that it's great to get a job, but like any career, there's only so many principals, there's only so many soloists, there's only so many quarter ballet. If you want to be a soloist and it's not happening for you in one particular company, part of that process is reflecting and being insightful about yourself and going like, okay, so it's not happening for me here. Is there somewhere else this might happen for me? Or is it just another couple of years is it a structural thing insofar as all those jobs are currently filled by dancers but some of them are on them in the process of transitioning out of their career to a different company therefore a job will come up and you're likely to get it great beautiful stay where you are life's going well for you if that's your goal but sometimes we have to be really honest about ourselves as dancers and go like okay well I've always wanted to be in this company Now I'm in the company, am I the right dancer for this company to succeed here? That's not always the case either. Sometimes the things that make me shine and make me an amazing performer 
aren't the things that that company holds as important. And that's totally okay. It doesn't make you a bad dancer and it doesn't make it a bad company. It just means there's a mismatch there. Um, personally, I had this a lot. I auditioned around Europe. I was um, quite a masculine, muscular dancer. Some companies looked at me and were like, absolutely not. We want something that looks totally different from that person. Some companies looked at me and said, yes, that's the exact person we want in our company. That's part of, that's part of your body, your soul, your creative energy also being a product. So when you say it's a transactional thing, it kind of is, even though it's also you. And that I think is where it gets very difficult as a dancer because there's this confusion between it being a personal attack and it being just a clash of what someone is very good at and the needs of a company. And I think as soon as you can recognize, okay, I am a fantastically masculine beastie partner that does this on stage. I am in a company full of tall, fine, ethereal people. This is not a space where I'm going to succeed unless they're looking for someone who stands out like a sore thumb. Unlikely, right? <laughs> yeah. Understanding what you bring. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I, I think that's, that's absolutely so true. Sometimes it's hard for dancers who are so self-critical to understand what they bring because so often we're told what we don't bring. <laughs> and that's, that's part of our training process, but it can also be very, um, yeah, it can be very difficult to see beyond that sometimes. Yeah. I like this. I use this tool, uh, great growing and how mm. and it's like, uh, so at the beginning of the week, you reflect on your previous week, you select thing, three things that you were great at, absolutely smash. Then you select three things that you're growing at. These are often like the things that the teachers or ballet staff have really like highlighted quite often go in the growing mm -hmm. and then the how right and the how is like how do I build these things all six so we don't just build our bad things we build our good things because the reason why you're being hired is because you've got great attributes mm -hmm. but we don't want to leave them on the shelf getting dusty while we focus on the things that we're not so good at but at the same time, we, we want to focus on it all. So we, we want to build ourselves into this fantastic artist. And part of that is focusing on what we're great at. So then after you kind of come through with those, you kind of do a smart goals for each of them. Okay, I was great at this. What's my smart goals for the weekend or the next two weeks? Go through all six. And then that's what you work on through the week. So you're not spending your weeks focusing on what you're rubbish at. You're not being self-critical necessarily the whole time. Some of the time you're really focusing on what you're fabulous at. Mm. Like, oh, I'm an amazing actor. Okay, cool. The next time you're in that rehearsal, how are we going to nuance this? How do we build this skill so that it's stratospheric? It's yeah. always about, oh, my rotation's not so good. I've got to work on that. So is everyone's, right? Like these, these mass criticisms, they're kind of normal across the board because human bodies aren't made to do ballet. but we can work <laughs> on rotation. Yeah. On that, but no one's going to hire us just because we've got great rotation. They're going to hire us because we have some exceptional stuff. Yeah. That's the thing that makes me a dancer that's up for hire. And mm -hmm. it's important that we grow that.
Mm. Yes, I love that. Working on the things that you know you're already good at, but yeah. So, and, and I, I guess it, hel- it just helps you not get bogged down in the things that everybody, like you said, everybody receives criticism at one point or another about mm. turnout. Yeah. Yes. So what were the things that, so you, you mentioned that when you transitioned and you were moving to Scotland, like you, you wanted to be a, a different dancer or so what were the best things that, or the best unexpected things that you found when you transitioned to a different company? Things that maybe you thought were going to be good and they were excellent or things that you didn't expect would be good, but they were great as well. I think <clears throat> I was really lucky. My whole career, I was really celebrated as a dancer. So uh, I, I've been very fortunate in that. I think the thing that I maybe wasn't expecting to be as good as it was was that process of transitioning from one company to the other gave me the opportunity to redevelop myself as a person, as a dancer, as an artist, and really like switch gears on what I thought I was good at, what uh, I brought to the table, the things that maybe I wasn't so great at, but it really made me go, okay, this is my product. This, if you want me, this is what you're getting. And I think that was really valuable to do mid-career because uh, Francois, Robin and Queensland Ballet before that had really built me up as an artist. They put a lot of effort into me, done a great job. And so I had all this information and I had all this, uh, these skills, but in having to take them somewhere else, I really had to look at them and go, okay, well, what are the skills I have? How do I use them? How do I mold them now myself? How do I take responsibility for the career I want and how I want it to go? And I think that was a really uh, amazing experience because it meant that I entered class differently. It meant that I entered rehearsals differently. Instead of going to a rehearsal and waiting for the person at the front of the room to direct me, I went in with an idea of what I wanted already. So it was far more collaborative. And that was the same as class. That was the same as performances. Uh, I felt far more valuable because I understood my value. So I think that was the really great thing. I think the thing that I was hoping and was uh, definitely received was working in Europe, was being around thousands more dancers and artists and and actors. And you're just in and amongst so many more people, even being in Glasgow, which is, you know, kind of on the edge of of Europe, it was still easy to get to places. It was still, I could still go down to London and do classes with someone. I could still pop over to Europe and see a show. I had friends because people move so much. I ended up with friends all across Europe in different companies. Um, And that was really so broadening for my experience of what it is to be a dancer. And again, built my understanding that this maybe one model of dancer that I'd sort of trained as wasn't necessarily the only model out there. Yeah, I think that's a really great reflection. I hope lots of young dancers are listening to this and being inspired and reassured, I guess. (laughs) I think it's very important. We've been talking for such a long time. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you very much for your insight and for your wonderful monkey explanations, Tama. It's always a pleasure to chat. So, yes, thank you very much.
Absolute pleasure. Super fun. Happy to come back and talk monkeys anytime. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> we'll see you soon. Awesome. Thank you. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.